welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your sessions and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide. I'm Jeffrey Smith, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at New York Medical College. And I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice certified in EMDR. Today, we're going to introduce you to a few of the most helpful concepts to clarify the work we do. This podcast is a companion to Chapter 10 in the book. Okay, so I I want to start with a little review. What are we really up to here? And going back to the earlier podcast, there are three things. First, we want to gain an understanding of what's going on, and that's going to be guided by the knowledge that what causes the troubles people have is basically avoidance of some uncomfortable, painful, troublesome emotion. And so so the first thing is to ask ourselves about what that emotion might be and how the dysfunctional patterns are, are operating to prevent that emotion from coming to consciousness. So the second thing we're going to be doing as we're continuing with our therapy is we're going to be helping the client to access those uncomfortable emotions to be able to detoxify or heal them, uh, at least if that's possible. Now, sometimes we have to do the third thing, which is to help invite people to let go of defenses that are blocking the emotion from being able to be available to the surface where we can work with it. So we're discovering, we're exploring in order to bring emotions to the surface, or we're talking about defenses and inviting our client to let them go. Okay, so chapter nine um, explored building a hypothesis uh, during the, the first assessment or the first intake session. And then continuing into chapter 10, we talk about how to conduct generic talk therapy. And you bring up a very interesting process, which you know, after identifying that every session has a topic, you bring up the third participant, the idea of the third participant. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Okay, it sounds like you, you, you like that one and I like it too. So the third participant is, is the inner child. And inner children are just like regular children. They tend to be a little shy, especially when they have something in mind that they're not so sure is going to go over well with the grown-ups. And, and so very frequently, the inner child already knows what the problem is and knows what the solution is. Let's say, for example, the, that when the client was little, there was, a, there was a significant amount of deprivation or some difficult situation came up uh, that, that, the, that the person just couldn't get by. Um, I, I talked to somebody the other day who witnessed her mother and a lover having an affair when she was 13. And a lot of her emotional growth and development got stuck right there because her mother told her never to tell her father and just hold that secret, and she did, but to the great detriment of her own, of her own development. So the inner child, uh, let's go back to the one about, about deprivation. The inner child knows that the solution to deprivation 
is to find some new person who's sort of like a parent and can make up for what was missed. Well, guess what? That's the therapist, right? right you nice person us. who's happy to listen and cares and all of that. So the inner child knows that the what really needs to happen in therapy is that the therapist is going to give me the love that I never got. Well, and then the the client says, "Okay, I I understand that I have to do the work here, and this is this is really mine, and and you're just here to give me a little bit of help and guide me." But the inner child, the third person present in the room, has a whole different agenda and is a little reluctant to say that out loud, so it's only going to come up over time. So that's an example of how it's it's very important to keep an eye op open for the presence of that inner child and the presence of a whole different agenda in the therapy. And so keeping an eye open to that, we must accept or follow the flow of the therapy, and, and you talk about that. Could you tell us a little bit more about what the flow of therapy is? Okay, this is a key technique, and it's really the, the heart and core of this chapter. So it, if we're doing what I call generic uh, talk therapy, then we're really trying to, to move in the direction of having the client carry the conversation. The client is going to be talking about, as, as Freud invented in the, or Freud's patient invented many years ago, client is going to be talking about whatever comes into their mind because that's the best way to have access to those feelings that are in need of being healed. For example, our idea of the solution to the deprivation is going to be to mourn what didn't happen to grieve for the loving and the nurturing that didn't take place. And sure, there's, there's plenty of room in adult life for, for nurturing, uh, but not the kind that you get when you're a little kid. And so there's going to be some grief and some letting go. But the inner child doesn't know about that. The inner child doesn't think that's going to work. Anyway, to go on, so we want the, the client to be carrying the conversation. And so we're going to have to do a little bit of work to explain that that's the job here for the client and uh, pass the baton in a way because in the first session we did the question, answer, the question asking and now it's the client who needs to do that. So we're going to do that and then we let the client go along and just talk. And if they say, well, what am I supposed to talk about? I, I, would, I would say, well, you know, talk about the troubles that, that brought you here and anything you you think might be relevant or irrelevant to those, and, and let's see what comes up, in, including things that are coming up in the here and now and, and whatever seems to be important to you. Now, our job as therapists is not just to listen and understand. The, the, the number one priority is to follow the flow because it's the flow of information that's going to tell us where the, where the important places are, where the feelings are lurking, so that we can facilitate those feelings coming to the surface. And so I like to think of it as a, as a three-step dance, and so we'll go through them one at a time. Right, so uh, the three-step dance, and step one, you call it a gentle nudge. Right. What we're listening to as we're listening for the flow is we're listening f for a continuous flow of new information. 
I think of it sort of like springtime flowers. It's, it's delicate, it's, it's fresh, it's, it's new things. If we're hearing the same old stuff, uh, that's, that's, not, that's a flow that's been blocked. Or if, we, if our curiosity detects that there's some area that's been skipped over, that might be an indication that the flow is, is not going the way it should. Or, or if the client comes to something and, and says, no, I don't want to talk about that, that's another indication. So we're listening to the, the continuity of the flow. And the first thing when we notice something that's, that, that seems to be a hitch in that flow, the first thing we do, the first step in the dance is what I call a nudge. It's just a little unobtrusive thing we say like, you know, tell me more about that, or, or hmm, I, I didn't quite get that. Well, that, that sounds interesting. I'd like to hear more. Something very unobtrusive. And then we go through a kind of decision tree. Because if that little nudge gets the flow going again, then we don't have to do anything. We just listen. And if it doesn't? Then that takes us to step two. And step two is really, really interesting. In step two, we change the subject. Only it's not really a subject because the subject has already changed. We're going to change the subject to what's going on in the communication. Like, gee, sounds like that may be a little bit hard to talk about. Or was there something there important that you might have missed? Or, you know, it leaves me curious about such and such. Is there something going on here? So that really it's what's going on when you say what's going on in the communication, it's what's going on in the flow. It has hit a snag. And so now we talk about that. Right. And, and what I like to say is that the mind is, has a cursor, like, like on your computer screen, and the cursor can only be in one place at a time. And, and what's happened is the cursor has shifted from the content of what the client was talking about and now, now what's where the mind is focused is on whatever discomfort is causing the flow to stop. So what we've done by focusing now on, in our comments and questions, we're focusing now on the flow, on, the, on whatever emotional stuff is going on that's affected the flow. So we're really just going with the flow. We're going with where the, where the client's mental cursor is located now. And for that reason, even though we seem to be changing the subject, we're actually, it's again unobtrusive. It just feels like natural conversation, only we're on a different subject. Now, one more thing, there's a word for this. Oh, so okay. here's the word, metacommunication. And metacommunication means talking not about the contents, but about the communication itself. So we're doing metacommunication. We're shifting the conversation in step two, shifting the conversation to the communication process. So as therapists, we're keeping our eye on, essentially, on the flow of information, on the content itself, and provided that it is flowing freely and that it is perfectly clear, then we'll stay on that. And if it isn't, then we start talking about the resistance that and, and engage in the metacommunication for instance, by saying it seems to be hard to talk about your mother's death. Right. And so... Which gets the flow going again. Exactly. Now, so we come to the decision tree again. If it works, 
if our if our new direction works, now we're talking about some very interesting things. We're talking about how difficult it is to talk about a certain subject, and that's going to get us right close to some of those feelings that we want to work with. But it might not work. What do you think might happen that that would make this fail? Uh, the the feelings or the emotions are too painful to access. Right, and so the client clams up, or or they say, "I can't deal with this," or uh, 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 and and so. What do we do then? Well, the, that's the third step. And it doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it's really got some very important elements. So the first thing we want to do, if, if the second step fails and we're going on to the third, we want to let the client off the hook. Right. You know, so we say, obviously this is too difficult for right now, it's okay, we don't need to go into this, we can leave it for later on, because I think it's very, very important, being something that's big enough for you to just get stuck on, let's, let's just go on for right now. So you call this a, a strategic retreat, and you make what I thought was a very important point, and that is to actually voice that strategic retreat so that the patient doesn't feel like he or she has failed in the flow. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Exactly. You, you said it, that it, you don't want to leave your client with a sense of, of failure. Uh, the other thing that is super important here is it's not a good idea to forget this. Because if you say we're going to come back to it later and you don't, then what is the client going to assume? That you don't care that you don't care or that it's too big for you too, that you, you can't deal with it. And, and so it's, it's extremely important for the therapist and the client may test you this way, may, may kind of just wait and see if you bring it up again. So it is very important, even if it's a matter of days or months before you bring it up, it's important to keep that in your, in your file of, of things that have been put on the back burner that need not to be forgotten. Let's go back for a minute okay. and, and talk about the beginning of each session. Okay. Um, when your client comes in, well, first you're going to take a look and you're going to form an impression already between the, the office door and the, and the client's chair, probably, of how, how the client is feeling, what's going on. Uh, you're going to have some, some impression, and then you're going to be listening is, is what comes out of their mouth, what they talk about, how is it related to the impression that you got. And so that nonverbal data and the, and the first bit of verbal data are going are gonna to tell you something. And what, we, what, we, what the, the therapist to be asking is, well, what's going to be the theme today? What's going on? What's on the client's mind? Where is that mental cursor? So maybe the first words that come are going to be a metaphor for what the subject really is. Uh, maybe they're going to be directly uh, relevant. But if we ask ourselves the question in the first few uh, seconds and minutes of the session, it's likely to be quite fruitful. It's likely to put us on a significant track. And the, the client may not immediately tell us what the what the subject is. So, and, and we're also going to remember, based on what happened in the last session, 
But sometimes a lot of things have intervened in the meantime, and so the last session may not be where we're starting, but it adds some piece of context. So, so the first question I think to ask in, a, in the beginning of every session is, where's the cursor? What's the subject going to be right. uh, today? Another thing that came up early in the chapter, well, there's, there's many elements in what I think of as, as the frame, and, and the best way to look at it is we're, we're trying to gain an understanding of, of the client, and it's like looking in a, in a lake. It's looking in the surface of a lake for the reflection of the trees on the other side. And if the lake is quiet and still, then we're going to see a perfect reflection. We're going to have a real, a lot of clarity um, in, in looking in this, in this lake. On the other hand, if the water's all choppy and, and people are swimming and boating and making, making a mouse, then we're not going to see very much at all. And so the frame might be things like, are you typically on time? Do you open the door at the time when the session is expected to begin? Is your demeanor fairly constant? Um, do you have the session on the same day at the same time every week? The more you have a steady kind of rhythm in the sessions, the quieter that that lake is going to be. And similarly, if the way you handle things, uh, whether you occasionally disclose a piece of personal information or how you react emotionally to what's going on in the session, all of these things create a kind of steadiness. And there's a great deal of variation from one therapist to another, but the steadiness is quite important because otherwise it becomes a distraction. And we, we want to really value this flow of information and not put our foot in it, not do things that jar or mess it up. Also, it's a, a useful point of view, and, and this is really true of this sort of generic talk therapy that's more psychodynamically based than, than let's say, CBT, um, but it's really a good base that we can start with for, for any kind of style. There's another principle that I think is quite important, and that is to think of, at least in this generic form of talk therapy, the things that we say are interventions. In other words, when, when words come out of the therapist's mouth, those are things that are going to change the flow of information, change the conversation. We are intervening, we're doing something active that's going to have an impact on the client's process. And I think it's a good, it's a good thing to think about that because therapists have a tendency to be overactive. And if we're going to be overactive, uh, many, many times I've seen therapists intervene at just the wrong time, just when something delicate and important but quiet is going on with the client then the therapist has this bright idea pop into their mind that now's the time to change the subject and talk about, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about what happened last time and, and bring up something that's on, on our mind. So I think it's very valuable to be a little bit sparing about when we intervene, to think of us as, as introducing a sort of foreign object into a natural conversation. And there are certain times, like in the three-step dance, where we need to do it when when the flow is interrupted, but we really need to be willing and ready to do our primary thing, which is just to listen to the flow and tune into 
what's going on and, and be there with the client. That's both healing and it's encouraging to the client to bring out more material and more emotion. It's, it's a very delicate balance to strike, isn't it? Where we need to maintain a conversational style in the session and yet at the same time be very judicious about what we're saying and why. In my office, I have a little sign behind the chair of, of my client that is an acronym uh, that spells out WAIT, which represents why am I talking? Beautiful. Okay, you got exactly the concept. Very, very good. Yes. Um, additionally, in, in your discussion of, of the frame of each session, you speak of rigidity. The rigidity that is traditionally known uh, in, or that is known in traditional psychoanalysis. And when to be a little bit more flexible, uh, and when to be more rigid, and the effects of rigidity and flexibility on the client. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. I think we, we both get it. If, you, if somebody listened into either of our sessions, they would say, well, that's just a conversation. That's a very natural conversation you're having. Is, what's the difference between that and therapy? Well, the differences are very real, uh, but, but they're fairly subtle. So rigidity means really anything that, that feels stilted or artificial. Uh, if, we're, if we're talking from a script, then that really puts a damper on the, on the flow of information. And in a similar way, I think too much silence can be very challenging and, and feel rigid and... And cold. And cold, that's right, yes. And so this is not applying a technique. This is really encouraging a flow of information and remembering that the client is the one who has the roadmap. And so if we want to understand the best way we can do that is by this listening, listening not only to the content, but also to the flow and what things might get in the way of, the, of that flow. Hence the usefulness of the three-step dance of nudging, moving to the meta-conversation, and the strategic retreat if a subject is too emotionally painful for the client to delve into at that time, right? Right, yes. And, and so just as important as the Things, the positive things we learn are the different forms of what we call resistance that might show up. Now, resistance is a very special term, and it, I'm almost reluctant to use the word because when therapists use the word out loud with their clients, the client always misunderstands that, that resistance means consciously resisting the therapy. And they might uh, take it as a, as a criticism. As a criticism, and that's not what it means at all. Resistance, by definition, is not conscious. The person is not aware of that somehow their own inner uh, instinctive problem solver is working to keep the conversation away from the red-hot emotions that are causing the trouble. And, and so there are many, many different kinds of coping mechanisms or resistance that are designed to keep us away from change that needs to happen anyway and to keep us away from emotions that are that are behind those maladaptive uh, patterns those EDPs yeah I'm putting words to feelings I think because mm -hmm. personally I mean in my in my practice I have a lot of uh, patients who who are 
severely traumatized and their experience of the world is on a deeply limbic level and they do not have access to words and it's very difficult and sometimes I feel like I'm a dentist extracting a molar. And I know that a lot of my colleagues also have trouble with patients who simply are just not very verbal and that the, the, the session itself can drag, can feel like, like three hours instead of 45 minutes. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. So the value of listening, okay. So it's about you know, being quiet when you need to be quiet and, and then how to teach somebody and help them to articulate their feelings, right? Yeah, okay. and pretty much process. Okay, yeah, go ahead. okay. So um, you speak of a second priority, uh, the first being the three step dance and, and maintaining uh, the flow of the session. Uh, the second priority is understanding and the value of listening. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Right. So exploration is, is a good word for for what we do to seek understanding. But the trick here is that the real purpose of exploration is to help bring feelings to the surface. It's That's even more important than whatever understanding we have. And the understanding we use in order to help the client access those those important feelings, the ones that are causing the trouble. So sometimes it's time for us just to be quiet and listen. Maybe this is especially important for male therapists because we all come ready-made, ready to fix things. We want to fix stuff. And, and there are many times when what we really need to do is to just be a witness. Right. Don't just do something. Sit there. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Yeah. And because being a witness is, is healing. Being a witness is what helps and will... We talked about it in the first um, uh, section of the of the podcast about how that listening is one of the things that allows memory reconsolidation to take place, where the the uh, fear and dread that are attached to a particular set of events and emotions uh, can be healed, can be relieved, just by being there, just by being somebody who understands and isn't freaking out. So one of the big challenges of this is um, when, we, when we have a, a client in the room who does not know how to articulate his or her feelings. So how, and, and so then the silence uh, between or in the room can become extremely uncomfortable for the client. And getting that flow, the three-step dance going, can be extremely difficult for the therapist. What do you suggest then in such instances? I'll talk about a, a situation that happened again the other day. A client was feeling very teary. We were talking about things that had happened kind of traumatic early in her, in her, in her life, and she was realizing how that this was the one who actually found the, the mother in, in having an affair. And it affected her tremendously to realize how she'd been carrying that burden for years and years and years, the burden of knowing that her mother had cheated on her father. So there she is in tears, and I knew at that time that what I needed to do was just wait and be there and be a witness. And then after about, I don't know, four or five minutes of, of silence, then it was time to, and it was okay to talk. If I had talked earlier, it would have been to intellectualize, but at that point the feelings had 
begun to soften. And so then we could talk about putting into some precise words what was going on. Sometimes if it's the therapist who comes up with the precise words and they really resonate, that's okay. And sometimes it's the client who needs to come up with the words. So there's a kind of feeling out and back and forth. And if it's the therapist who suggests something, well, maybe it's what you're feeling really has to do with how you became responsible for dealing with your mother's guilt and and her ambivalence about whether she was going to stay with this lover or, or give that up and stay with her husband. You became the custodian of that pain. Those are kind of clumsy words right now. They weren't the ones that I used at the time. But then when your words come out of your mouth, you're asking as well as telling, and you're encouraging the client to have their own words to describe that. So that's one way I teach people to put things to words is by a suggestion here and there and then giving them room and time to react to that. Do you have some other thoughts about that? Well, it it seems that this is then the process of making meaning out of the emotional experience of the client, right? Where you're suggesting words and uh, really trying to verbalize what is much more emotionally felt, where in a way you're kind of telling the client Mm -hmm. and not so much asking. And you mentioned this uh, in the chapter. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. I think it was Carl Rogers mm-hmm. who came up with the, with the phrase accurate empathy. And, and what he captured there was that, that feelings have a context. And when we understand the context of a feeling, it makes the feeling much, much richer. And it actually gives us access to the the, the deepest, most intense place where the feeling is located, somewhere deep in the limbic system, when we get the context exactly right. Uh, I remember a client now who was sexually abused in her childhood and her mother covered for her father who did the abuse, and they both enforced that, that the whole thing was not going to be talked about, was just was just there. And we talked once about how this forced her to scrunch down mm. and just make herself small. That, that, that phrase, scrunch down, turned out to be to capture exactly the feeling that she carried, not just about the original pain of being abused, but the, but the way that her whole being was distorted by, by this thing being kept secret for years and years. So a, a word, a phrase can be very important in establishing the context that really gives you access to the the richness of an emotion. And then conversely, you speak of when not to tell, when not to help describe that limbic experience. Here we're talking about less about the immediate emotional experience as more like uh, at, at a point in the session when you might be making meaning, when you might be talking about what it adds up to. And there, there are times when you might have an idea, and one reason not to talk about it is because you may know that the client really isn't ready to deal with whatever it is you're thinking. Another reason is that you're really not sure. And so sometimes 
floating an idea that you're not sure about can be helpful because it might trigger something with the client and the client says, you know, yeah, that's exactly on target or what? Um, so, so you learn something about it. But if we, if we get too busy bringing up ideas and theories and things like that, then we're going to distract the client. We're going to uh, break this, this frame. But it's true that there's an ebb and flow in the sessions. Sometimes we're down deep into an emotional experience. And then at other times, we're kind of past that emotion and we're making meaning. We're talking about what it all adds up to and how it affects behavior. So we might be talking about some kind of resistance that's blocking us and keeping us from getting close to the key emotions. Talk to us a little bit about ending the session in, in a positive way. Okay, I think, I think the first thing to be aware of is that doing heavy-duty emotional work in the last 15 minutes of a session is not a good idea. You don't want to open the client up on the operating table and, and then not sew them back and just... So, so that's, that's really important. And then I think, I think we want to give a little bit of time for emotions to settle. Uh, we want to maybe highlight what's been important and put a name to whatever loose ends might be important at that point. And then we bring it to a, to a pleasant close and, and that's going to be good enough. Okay, so this is a long chapter, so we're going to wind up here today and pick up the second half of the chapter next time. Well, this concludes today's podcast. Uh, thank you for listening to the end, and we hope it's been helpful to you. We'd love you to visit Dr. Smith's website, www.howtherapyworks.com, where you can purchase the book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide, and find other articles for clients and therapists. Thank you, everybody. Okay, bye. Bye.